Please stay tuned for important disclosure information at the conclusion of this episode. Hi, and welcome to The Long View. I'm Jeff Patak, Global Director of Manager Research for Morningstar Research Services. And I'm Christine Benz, Director of Personal Finance for Morningstar, Inc. Our guest on the podcast today is Dr. David Blanchett, Head of Retirement Research for Morningstar Investment Management. In his role at Morningstar Investment Management, David works to enhance the investment management group's consulting and investment services and conducts research primarily in the areas of financial planning, tax planning, annuities, and retirement. He's also adjunct professor of wealth management at the American College of Financial Services. David's research has been published in a variety of academic and industry journals, such as the Financial Analyst Journal, the Journal of Financial Planning, the Journal of Portfolio Management, the Journal of Retirement, and the Journal of Wealth Management. His research won the Journal of Financial Planning's 2007 Financial Frontiers Award, the Retirement Income Industry Association's 2012 Thought Leadership Award, the Journal of Financial Planning's 2014 and 2015 Montgomery Warshower Awards, and the Financial Analyst Journal 2015 Graham and Dodd Scroll Award. David, welcome to The Long View. Thanks for having me. So maybe a good place to start is with gamma, which is a concept that you've helped to popularize. You've done some research where you've attempted to quantify the value that an advisor can add to clients' returns with recommendations other than investment selection. Maybe you could walk us through that framework. What are the so-called gamma factors, and, and what would you consider to be the most important factors where an advisor can add the most value for clients? Sure. So there's lots of um, fun names today to talk about the value of advice. There's Advisors Alpha, there's Capital Sigma, there's Zeta. Gamma was a long time ago as a financial planner. My and Paul Kaplan's first kind of interpretation at what do advisors do beyond just building great portfolios? And I didn't like the fact that my value is often defined as performance when you're helping someone accomplish a goal. And so in the research that came out, I don't know, five or six years ago, we kind of asked the question, you know, if you can quantify certain things that you do to help someone retire, what are they? And that includes things like, you know, creating a dynamic withdrawal strategy, possibly allocating more to guaranteed income, utilizing total wealth to build portfolios. And, you know, when I talk about it, I say we found that doing these five things adds 2%-ish in what we call gamma equivalent alpha for advisors. But in reality, you can do hundreds of things to help someone retire successfully or accomplish a goal. This research is geared on that, helping quantify or bring to light the other things that matter than just building great portfolios. Mm-hmm. So what are some of the other things that were not included in the gamma research, some things that you think can be really impactful? I mean, I think if you look not only at, you know, there was a follow-up piece we did focused more on portfolio decisions, but also other research. I think it's it's, it's really the behavioral piece, which is, you know, helping investors make good decisions over long periods of time, right? That includes savings advice. That includes staying in the market. Other things just vary by investor. I mean, it's tax strategies. It's estate plan. It's really just helping someone accomplish a goal. And the part of it that's most important is that it's just really hard to quantify. And if you focus just on portfolios, I think you kind of devalue what a financial planner does for their clients. 
So one of the things that we do here in the financial advisor community is advisors invoking, you know, call it gamma, call it advisors alpha, mm-hmm. whatever your term is, to justify their fee. And so there's obviously a kernel of truth to that in the sense that they provide valuable advice and they deserve to be paid for it. But do you think that in some quarters, perhaps advisors are maybe misrepresenting the value that they can add to clients just because they're oversimplifying it, distilling it down to a single number that perhaps has been published? Right. And that's why I hate to focus too much on the precision. You know, I think it was like 1.59% in the first piece. That's just way too precise, right? And you know, there's this kind of implicit assumption that they're actually doing the things that it talks about. I mean, it requires you know, ongoing planning slash advising on a regular follow-up basis. And you know, in, in my experience, planners provide a spectrum of services. So some of them just build portfolios. They want to perceive themselves as advisors, but they're not doing financial plans. They're not doing all that hard work that comes with planning. So I think that in reality, the, the true value of each planner varies, but people like numbers, and it's just hard to quantify. Yeah. You know, we've spoken to a number of advisors on this podcast and a number of different business models that they work under. Some of them are on the traditional sort of basis points on assets model. Others are hourly planners. And so when you think about the spectrum of value that planners, advisors can add, do you have a view on what an appropriate fee model is based on some of the research that you've conducted and the sorts of components of value that you've seen planners and advisors add? So I'm less concerned about the fee model as I am them being fiduciaries and providing holistic services. I think that normally that's more conducive to do in a fee-based environment. But I think that in theory, you could provide someone with a financial plan and get paid a commission and still do a great job. So Mm -hmm. I think that, again, fees make more sense to me. But then again, when we talk about fees, like what is the right fee structure? Mm -hmm. I mean, I think that our industry is predominantly – you know, based upon basis points. Mm -hmm. And I think if we're all really honest with ourselves, an hourly model makes more sense because other professionals don't charge a basis points. You know, in Mm -hmm. theory, if you're managing risk via portfolio, part of that could be basis points. But financial planning is kind of like being an accountant or an attorney, and they charge typically primarily by the hour. And so I think Mm -hmm. that, you know, I'd like to see the industry evolve, but you know, when you do the math, usually compensation is quite a bit lower mm-hmm. hourly versus basis points. Shifting gears a little bit, you help contribute to Morningstar's retirement advice business. Let's talk about some of the key trends that you see in that marketplace. How have things shifted in your years working within that space, the defined contribution space? Right. So the group that I'm a part of here at Morningstar is the workplace team, and they offer a suite of solutions for DC plans. And I think that Where our group has grown is just this desire for kind of independent advice and information, whether it be kind of helping plan sponsors build menus for plans or just having general advice. There's been an obvious growth in, you know, robo-advice. You know, there's the ones that we know about in the retail space like Wealthfront and Betterment. But where I spend most of my time is actually a a robo-solution for defined contribution plans that's called managed accounts. And I think that increasingly – Plan sponsors have realized that people need help. There's different ways they can get it, but one way they can get you know unconflicted advice and information is via a robo investing solution inside defined contribution plan. So it's been growing. Um, the assets are still very small, as are the participants as total DC assets. But I think we're going to see greater adoption over time. So let's just talk about what a managed account is, and if my plan offers one, how that's different from the target date funds that are defaults in many 
401k plans. Sure. So managed accounts is kind of a terrible name because it's used in <laughs> lots of different domains for different things. But for better or for worse, we call it managed accounts inside defined contribution plans. And it's not normally the default. You know, most defaults are target funds. And, you know, I think target funds are a really good first approximation of how someone should invest, right? If we go back over a decade, people were building portfolios themselves. That was just a terrible idea. You know, most people should not be building portfolios. But, you know, the idea that everyone that's in a five-year age band should have the same portfolio is really kind of an oversimplification. And so I think that, you know, things like managed accounts, again, think robo-advice, can help someone figure out not only what is the right portfolio for me, but also, for example, how much should I save, when can I retire, et cetera. And I think one area they're just so attractive is that, you know, the best kind of solution ignoring cost for participants would be to meet with a certified financial planner every year for two hours, okay? That is not cost-effective, right? If the average balance is $35,000, there's no way you can get someone to work with everyone to give them a great plan. I think managed accounts is a way to get guidance and advice on savings and investing from a fiduciary in a low-cost way. So I really see it as kind of a complement today to target funds where it's helping someone figure out what they should be doing at a personalized level. They are being utilized more as the default, but again, we really see TDFs as the primary default in DC plans today. Target date funds. Yeah. So give me an example of how the allocation in the managed account setting might differ for the same person versus what the target date option based on that person's age would be. Sure. So, you know, most target date funds aren't personalized to the plan Almost at all. I think a a plan sponsor will select a fund because it's an index or they like the performance. What managed accounts might say, for example, is let's say you've got an old school employer that has, for example, a very large generous pension plan for employees. So, you know, we would say, well, um, pension income is very much like a bond. And so we're going to have a more aggressive portfolio for the participant. Other things could affect the allocation too, things like human capital riskiness. Um, The key is thinking about, you know, not only plan demographics, but also participant demographics. You know, along those same lines, someone who has very low compensation will get the vast majority of their income or retirement via Social Security They can be more aggressive. There's also the reverse to that. So it's thinking about what makes the plan different and the participant different to result in a more appropriate asset allocation for each investor. So those are good examples of the pension plan plus salary, and those are things that would automatically be at your disposal as someone running these accounts. But it seems like in order for you to really get that holistic view of what the person has going on, they need to give you some information, right? They need to tell you what their spouse has in their 401k plan, what their total savings are Mm -hmm. elsewhere, and so forth. So let's talk about that piece of it. Mm -hmm. How do you get people to give you what you need to help make really good choices? Yeah, so I call that the known unknown when building solutions in a DC plan. And to be honest, it's really hard. You know, we distribute our managed account solution kind of two different ways. One is where we're behind the scenes, where our partner utilizes their user interface as their experience. Other approaches where it's our user interface, our experience. And we're doing things to make it easier, but it's just a really hard time to get someone to go in and engage consistently and give us all that information. So we're trying to make it better, but it's tough. What is your research suggested as an appropriate price for a managed account solution? And we should disclose here that this is a business in which Morningstar is engaged, and so we're not, you know, totally sort of independent and objective on this. But all the same, I would imagine that you've done some research that looks into the trade-off between fee and the benefits that one accrues from increasing personalization through a managed account. And so, what has that told us? 
So, I mean, to me, it's when I think about managed accounts, I think about what is the value of a robo-advisor. I don't kind of just segment it to the 401k domain. It's it's what is the value of working with a better mentor wealth front versus a kind of a true on advisor. And, and I, I don't believe it's the same thing. I think that robos, by definition, aren't going to be as personalized on average. They possibly can be. But I would say as long as it's less than 50 basis points and you're fully utilizing the service, it's probably worth the cost. You know, obviously, if it costs more than that, there's just this question of, well, what else could you be getting or doing if you weren't working with the robo-advisor? One thing that nags at me is, and I know you spent a lot of time on this issue, David, is the decumulation mm-hmm. stage of retirement. So when someone gets close to retirement, how the plan goes about helping them determine how much they can take out, where they should take the money out, and so forth. Do you think that there's more work to be done in that space? And sort of what's your vision of the evolution of decumulation solutions? I mean, obviously, the the research on decumulation is kind of somewhat new, right? Bill Bingen's piece on the 4% rule came out about 25 years ago. Um, We've seen more since then. And I think that what's so complicated about decumulation is that it's so personalized. Everyone is so different. And there's this kind of combination of irrevocable choices you have to make. When do you claim Social Security? You know, are you going to buy an annuity? And I think that what we need is, you know, you need to have rules of thumb, but also personalization. So I think that what I'd like to see is more of an intersection of the future of research on optimal strategies, combining the behavioral aspect of things. You know, I've written a lot of research on annuities, for example. No one buys annuities. And so it's it's how do you kind of take this idea that certain strategies or solutions are better, but actually get folks to go down that path and enjoy it, right? So I think, I think, it's, I think there's still a lot of work to do to really help people retire more successfully. So there's legislation that's wending its way through Congress that perhaps would make annuities more readily available in retirement plans. And so do you think that's a positive development? I do. So, you know, the, the, it's, it's the SECURE Act. And, you know, here's my thing about annuities in DC plans. There's been a whole kind of mixture of perspectives. And let's say that there's kind of like seven reasons that a plan sponsor would add an annuity. This might eliminate one of those seven reasons, okay? And so I don't think what you're going to see if the SECURE Act passes is every plan adding annuities. I think what you'll see is on the margin, some plan sponsors who thought, you know, we're getting rid of our pension plan. I want to offer my participants a way to access guaranteed income in a safe, high-quality environment, they might kind of pull the trigger. So I don't think much will change, and it's not going to probably be part of the default. It's just going to be an option that's there should someone use it. And and I like it. I like giving someone choice. I like plan sponsors having access to it and not being afraid to add it for fear of being sued. Going back to retirement accumulators as opposed to people who are getting ready to pull money from their plans, let's talk about the nudges that have been put into place over the past couple of decades, like automatic enrollment. Do they go far enough in your view? Are there more steps that should be taken? Because I think there's some agreement that they really have been working, right? right? But should we take things even a little further still on the nudge front? Yeah, I think that, like, really, it's really interesting, you know, with the Pension Protection Act, you had automatic enrollment, and that really did have a pronounced increase in participation. You know, it went up from, say, 75% to 95%. I think the shortfall of it was that, as an industry, we selected a default rate that's too low. 3% was, without a doubt, the predominant default used in DC plans. Now it's going up to 6%, which is better, but it's still too low. 
And so we really haven't seen this significant increase in savings rates. You know, there's two key drivers of getting that nest egg in retirement. There's investing and saving. And, you know, I think that most folks that are professional investors don't expect returns to be all that high in the near future. That means savings is even more important than it's ever been in the past. And I don't know that we can actually ever get to a really good place in terms of default investing because lots of folks aren't covered by DC plans. Those that are in them can opt out, they cash out. I think it's getting better, but we're just not where we need to be to have kind of a better retirement for most Americans. So one thing we covered with our colleague Aaron Shapiro was the idea of whether there should be some – you and I have talked about this too, David – the idea of like a thrift savings plan, some very cheap Mm -hmm. plan that is available to anyone regardless of what their employer is offering up. Is that something that you would favor? Do you think that's a good idea? So, I mean, I think we might see that, you know, there's a provision in the SECURE Act that has open MAPs that's kind of similar to offering, a, you know, a TSP. So the MAPs uh, are the multiple employer, employer plans. plans. That's right. I, I mean, you know, here's here's my thing is that let's say that I'm a small business owner. You know, I wear 20 different hats and I've got 30 things to worry about. I don't know that because the plan is cheap is going to make me add it to the plan. I think that cheap is relative because I'm not paying for it. My participants do. And so will it improve things? Maybe, but will it get us again to kind of like this national level of savings? I don't think so. I mean, I think that, you know, my my best idea isn't palatable. It's it's mandatory savings, probably employer-based savings like they do in Australia, because I think that's what it really takes to get people to move the needle is to force them or their employer to save for retirement. Okay. So which mandatory contribution would you favor, the one on the part of the employee or the employer? So solely behavioral would say the employer because it doesn't feel the same. Like we're already telling someone that they have to save via Social Security and their employer, but making the employer do it I just think would be slightly more acceptable among Americans, but I don't really perceive either one of those passing in the near future. We've been alluding to it, but there's sort of the general topic of retirement readiness. We talked to Aaron Shapiro, who we mentioned before about that. We also spoke to William Bernstein, a number of our guests. Mm -hmm. And it has been surprising, the diversity of views on how retirement ready the populace at large is. So uh, we'd like to get your perspective, given the fact that you live in that world. Are we where we need to be? So, you know, one thing that gets tossed around a lot is this idea of a retirement crisis. And I don't think we have a retirement crisis. I think we have maybe a retirement savings crisis. If we didn't have Social Security, we'd have a retirement crisis because you'd have people that are destitute in retirement. That's why the system was created. It ensures some minimum income level when you retire. But if you look at where savings rates are today and where they've been, they're lower than where they were 40 years ago. And we've seen a significant decline in pension plans. And so as a country, we are not saving enough for retirement to live the same lifestyle when you finally retire. Now, here's the thing, though. You know, retirees are very happy on average. About 90% of retirees are either satisfied or very satisfied with retirement. If you ask Americans, do we have a retirement crisis? About half of America thinks we do, but only about 10% of pre-retirees and 5% of actual retirees describe their situation as a crisis. And so what all the data suggests to me about the surveys is that we aren't saving enough on average, but people tend to make it work. Could retirement be more enjoyable if you saved more? Yes, but it's the hard part of getting folks to save more for retirement to get them there. So how about by generation? Is there a risk that the baby boomers who are entering retirement and people below them in age who have not had the benefit of pensions by and large, that things could get worse because of that? Do you Can you look at this by age band? Yeah, I mean, I think that 
as the need to fund retirement is increasingly placed on individual shoulders, normally younger Americans, there's going to be a wider gap, right? And so I think that there's other questions around things like Social Security retirement benefits, where they're going to be 20 or 30 years from now. You know, like the bad news for all of this is just people just have to save more. You know, when you've got lower returns, you've got lower Social Security benefits potentially, you've got lower pension benefits, it places more the burden on individuals to prepare retirement for themselves. And we just haven't been doing that collectively. You've got things like student loans that are kind of demanding additional monies for younger Americans. So it's definitely a lot to tackle. So is it realistic to expect those who maybe are at greatest risk of, let's call it a retirement savings shortfall of sorts, is it realistic to expect them to step up their spending sufficient to close the gap and be where they need to be to have an acceptable retirement living situation? So, you know, I have a different perspective on this maybe than a lot of folks do because both of my parents were public school teachers. They both worked for 27 years and they have an absolutely glorious retirement, okay? They were not paid all that great by most metrics that you would use. However, they had forced savings via the public pension, a very generous public pension. And so I think the question is, is what is our desire as a country to save for retirement? And it's difficult to save, but we are, I think, too focused on consumption and shiny new toys. And so, yes, there are things demanding our attention, but you know, other countries have long had savings rates much higher than ours. Yes, there's different demands for dollars today, but I think we could get there if we wanted to. We just don't necessarily have the desire across the board. Now, that's not to say that a lot of folks aren't struggling. There's not a lot going on. But I think most of it is by choice, not because there's simply no money available. So delving into the nitty-gritty of working on a retirement plan, you've done a lot of work on the topic of income replacement rates, how much of the income I had while I was working will I need to replace when I actually retire. What you found is that there's this huge divergence, anywhere from like 90% of income needs to be replaced at the high end down to like 55%. So let's talk about the swing factors in play there. Generally speaking, the higher income folks need to replace less, mm-hmm. correct? Yeah. You know, one of the – so my very first job out of school was I worked for a financial planning department. We did financial plans. And so I would work through like 15 or 20 or 30 a month. It, it seems obvious. But the thing that shocked me was everyone has a different number, right? You know, and every, like the, you have the income and you have what they need. And, it, you know, they were related, but they were very different, right? And it comes down to what is your lifestyle? What are you saving today? What do you want to live off of? And that's why, you know, for example, in a 401k plan, you know, we might estimate how on track you're based upon a, a 70% replacement rate. But in reality, everyone's different, right? What you need to get by on retirement is your number. And that's why when you're doing a financial plan, it's for to kind of understand what do you want to spend in retirement so you can actually kind of save for that correct number. So let's talk about why the higher income person while working would tend to need less of that simply because they're saving more, in, I would In theory, guess. they're saving more. Yeah, yeah. So right. In, in what theory, else? I mean, so like when you retire – what happens? Well, you stop working, you stop spending money on certain things, right? So you stop, for example, saving for retirement, you stop paying Social Security taxes. Certain expenses go away. And older Americans, and especially higher income Americans, should be, for example, saving more. And so given the fact they're saving more for retirement, means they've got to replace less of their income percentage-wise than someone who was making lower income levels. And so, I mean, it really kind of varies by household. But to me, more interesting phenomenon by income level is how spending changes in retirement, where individuals that spend more at age 65 say, 
$100,000 tend to see much larger decreases in spending throughout retirement because more of their spending is discretionary. They, they choose to spend less over time. There's really interesting implications about income and spending, not only at retirement, but through retirement. Okay. So let's talk about that because your research in that space has been absolutely groundbreaking. So you've examined the trajectory of retirement spending and found that there is sort of a pattern where it's, you call it the retirement spending smile, where you've got higher outlays at the beginning, tapering off, and then maybe heading up a little bit later in life. Let's talk about the key factors driving that trajectory. It seems like maybe pent-up demand to do discretionary spending at the early years of retirement would be the key driver, why it would be high initially. Mm-hmm. Let's talk through that. Yeah. So, I mean, again, like the logic for every household, I don't, I don't know their, what drives their decisions. But what you tend to see is that younger retirees tend to increase their consumption by more than inflation. So we'll define younger as like 60 and under. Okay. They tend to, if inflation's 3%, they spend 5% more than the previous year. And as you kind of move to older age, say by age 80, you're actually spending a little bit less than inflation every year. But then if you're still alive by age 90, there's a pretty decent chance you're going to spend more than inflation because of healthcare costs. And, you know, if you kind of net it all out, retirees on average spend about 1% less versus inflation every year. So if you assume inflation is 3%, they're spending only rises about 2% a year. Now, it varies by income level, where households that have more discretionary spending, higher income households, tend to spend less. But this is kind of questions, you know, that fundamental assumption of what do I assume is the retirement income need? Do I assume that it's, you know, a need plus inflation or some lower number? And I think why it's important is just to help retirees understand when and how they should consume their savings. I think it it might actually make sense to take that cruise when you're 70 years old because you're not going to take it at age 85. So kind of maybe enjoy the money now while you can versus holding on to it, you know, until late retirement. So given these vectors, the fact that there's variations in, you know, income replacement preferences and also the trajectory of spending can vary depending on maybe one retires and other Mm -hmm. circumstances – These are things that we probably have to model in when we're making recommendations through the various services that we offer predicated on the research that we can do. Can you briefly talk about how we approach that? How do we solve for things like variations and how much income needs to be replaced and and when someone would retire and the implications that has on their spending trajectory? So I would say that for the most part, as an industry, we do a pretty poor job modeling it, right? So the industry defined as financial planning has moved away from what I would call a deterministic projection where you assume a constant rate of return, there's no variability at all, to Monte Carlo. Monte Carlo is when you assume randomness in outcomes, okay? Here's the thing. Most of these decision models, these tools, assume a single set of decisions are made when you retire and you follow that same path for 30 or 40 years, okay? In reality, shocks happen of all types. You can adapt as things change. You know, the metrics we use are things like success rates. So that's not necessarily a great metric of the magnitude of failure. So I mean, like, we're trying to model these things as best we can, but I'm not convinced that the tools we have are very good because it doesn't reflect, you know, the things that can possibly happen as well as how we adapt to situations over time. And so I think what this means is that you know, planning is a very fluid thing, you know. So a financial plan is not a, oh, I got a plan two years ago, I'm good. It's every year kind of asking the question, how is this still relevant? So that as things happen, you kind of make adjustments over time that are minor versus kind of major changes in spending or savings, things like that. 
So, David, let's talk about long-term care. You hinted at health care costs mm-hmm. spiking later in life in some households. So let's talk about that issue of some enormous outlay right. for long-term care later in life. When I speak to retired audiences, that's like the hair-on-fire issue where people are terrified of what will happen if they need to spend on long-term care. How should people approach that? It seems like there's really a dearth of good options. Yeah, I mean, if you think about a long-term care expense, it's like the definition of what you would want to insure. It's a low probability event that's high cost, right? right? But can you afford the insurance? A lot of folks can't. Can you get the insurance? You may not actually be able to get reasonably priced long-term care insurance. And, and so, insurers are literally stepping out of that right. market and every day. The costs are increasing. I mean, yes, you could have afforded the premium five years ago, but they've increased the rates, and so now you can't afford it. And so I think that, to your point, like long-term care is this thing that there's just no good answer for. Right, Because in reality, most individuals that have a long-term care expense that's significant, it's relatively rare. It doesn't happen all the time. But when it happens, it can just be colossal. It can be incredibly detrimental to a household. And you can always you know, use the house as a last resort. But I don't know that there's a great option available unless there's some kind of public policy initiative where kind of like Social Security, the government steps in for all income levels to provide that kind of guarantee, which I doubt would happen. But I, I, don't, I don't have a good answer for retirees because in theory, you insure against it. But Usually, people can't afford it or they're not able to. So what do you think about these hybrid products that have come online to replace the pure long-term care? So it's like a a life insurance policy that you can add a long-term care rider to, I believe. Yeah, I mean, they've been around for a long time. I'm just not sure how attractively priced they are. But in the end of the day, what I'm not great at is the behavioral stuff. And even if it's a bad quote-unquote investment – if it gives someone peace of mind, it could be worth it for them to own in retirement. You know, it's really, you know, I would recommend if you're going to buy a policy like that, you understand the pros and cons. But if it gives you the peace of mind to say, you know what, I've got something in case something happens, it could be worth it. Maybe we'll pivot and talk a bit more specifically about withdrawal rates, another topic that you've written prolifically about. You contributed to research questioning the value of the 4% guideline for retiree portfolio spending, whereby the retiree takes out 4% or thereabouts of his or her balance in year one of retirement, then inflation adjusts that number thereafter. And and your issue has to do with the current market environment. So can you expand on that and explain why it is perhaps we need to rethink 4%? Yeah, and and so that was some research with Michael Finka and Wade Fow, both the American College. And there's been lots of research done on, you know, how much does someone have to have saved for retirement, right? The 4% probably is, it's probably the the wrong metric to use because it really is focused on what do you take out of the portfolio in the first year of retirement where you then increase that amount by inflation? One divided by 4% is 25. You know, a better metric is you need 25 times your portfolio income goal when you retire to be okay, right? But, you know, if we look at like Bingen's original research and others, they almost always use U.S. historical returns. And, you know, we have 90-ish years of data using the Ibbotson time series. You've got you know, 120 using the Dimson, Martian, Staunton data set. You go back over 200 years using data from Jeremy Siegel. But while that might seem robust, that number changes significantly if you use different countries. You know, if you use Japan, the safe rate is like 
0.5%. Italy, it's like 0.7%. And so when you change the definition of what are the returns going to be, it changes dramatically. And that's important because of context. You know, people created these rules using historical returns, not thinking, well, you know, is the U.S. representative of what history has been for markets? It hasn't been. And so then a different angle is to say, what about the future? And, you know, I don't I, – I, I can guess what's going to happen the next 10 years in the markets. I don't know that I'm going to be right. I'm probably wrong. But, you know, a lot of people think that returns will be lower going forward. You know, you've got, for example, yields on treasuries now that are 300 basis points below the long-term average. So it would stand to reason that returns going forward are going to be lower. And if you adjust the return assumptions to what people assume as reasonable forward-looking estimates, if you use average historical numbers, you know, 4% all of a sudden becomes 3%. And – I'm not suggesting that 3% is the right answer, but again, it's about context. You know, what has been safe historically really hasn't been safe globally, nor will it likely be safe using, I think, more realistic return assumptions. So it also sounds like, based on our discussion of how people actually spend in retirement, that this idea of like a fixed real withdrawal per year just isn't realistic. That's not how people do it. Plus, it seems like a lot of the research that you and others have contributed to suggests that people should be somewhat variable in terms of their withdrawals based on what's going on with their portfolios. So let's talk about that, some of these flexible withdrawal systems. It seems to me that one of the problems is that they can get really complicated. But let's talk about if people want to legitimately try to craft some sort of a flexible withdrawal system, what's the right way to go about doing it? Sure. So the easiest one that's pretty good is the RMD rule, which is just one over how long you want to plan to live for. So, so the required minimum distribution right. tables tell I, you how much to I, take out I don't out know that I would IRA. use their tables, but, okay. just, but just, just pick a number. I want to plan to live for 20 more years, take out 5%, right? It's not perfect by any means, but as long as you go back in every year and readjust the expectations, it usually works pretty well. And it's interesting, like the most important driver of a safe withdrawal rate is not actually flexibility. It's what is your existing level of guaranteed income? What is the magnitude of failure? You know, if you've got 90% of your income coming from Social Security and pensions, you could take out like 6% in the first year of retirement because, you know, what is the actual impact on your consumption? And a problem with research on withdrawal rates is that it almost entirely ignores the impact of guaranteed income. It assumes that a failure from a portfolio is cataclysmic. And it might be if you have no pension income whatsoever, but most people have a decent amount of income from Social Security, which significantly mitigates the impact of a shock to the withdrawal amount. So I would say that, you know, when advisors think about what is a safe withdrawal rate, well, if you're using success as your metric for projection, you're not going to capture that, right? Most advisors don't have tools that actually model dynamic spending rates. And so what you end up seeing is that, you know, so we wrote that piece that talked about 3% is the new 4%. Well, it's really not. I think that 4% still a great number. It's all about context. What does it mean to have to make an adjustment in your spending if you can do so throughout retirement? So if 3% is the new 4%, let's suppose hypothetically that we see a significant drawdown in markets and expected returns improve meaningfully. And so in that scenario, all things being equal, would you say 4% is the new 3%? And to the extent that that's so, do you think that there are any sort of behavioral hurdles that one needs to consider that would maybe preclude a retirement saver from actually stepping up their spending in the face of what's been a significant drawdown with all the attendant worries it triggers? Well, yeah, but I mean, so if 4% is the new 3%, your balance is only worth a third of what it was before. So, you know, like the net impact for you as an investor 
hasn't changed income-wise. But I do think it's really important, you know, across generations to think about how much I have to save. And, and this is, I think, critical for financial plans. I mean, a financial plan can last like 70 years, right? So an important question is, what are you using as your return assumptions? And so one thing that we do that I really like in our models is we have what we call a conditional return and an unconditional return. We think that returns might be low for the next, say, 10 or 15 years. But we have no clue what's going to happen 20 years into the future. So we assume that it drifts back to the long-term average, right? So what, why is this important? Well, you know, we think that if you're retiring right now, you're in a pretty rough spot. Okay, we think lower returns are going to happen for you. But if you're 25 years old, we're not going to assume that bond yields are 2% for the next 70 years. And so, again, it's about context. I don't, I don't know that a lot of planners can do this, but I think it's really important to tell someone, hey, there's a pretty good chance that returns are low for you today, Mr. Retiree. But maybe, you know, if you're only 35 years old, things might get to a better place when you eventually retire. So it's about kind of putting context around the uncertainty around future returns. So that brings us to another raging debate in the retirement planning community, which is what retirement portfolios should look like. And there's been some research advanced by Michael Kitsis and Wade Fow where they looked at what they called the reverse glide path, the idea that because of some of the risks that you've just talked about of new retirees entering retirement in what could be a lousy market environment over maybe the next decade, they should start out pretty equity light, that they should have more bonds, maybe more cash, and then ramp up equity exposure. I know you've pushed back very nicely on that research. You don't agree that that reverse glide path makes a lot of sense. Again, I mean, these are all kind of rules of thumb. And so I tested like all these different market return scenarios and, and income preferences and inflation rates. And on average, a declining glide path makes the most sense. It's also the most intuitive. I mean, I think that, you know, a lot of research ignores retiree preferences. I don't think grandma who's 90 years old wants to be in a portfolio that's all stocks. And maybe she can be, but I think that it makes more sense to have a balanced risk exposure when you first retire, say 60-40, and then adjust that over time. I mean, a problem with being conservative today, for example, is if you buy, you know, right now the whole treasury yield curve is only about 2%, okay? If you buy treasuries yielding 2%, and you tack on inflation, fees, and taxes, that is a negative rate of return, okay? That will certainly not last you more than 25 years in retirement. And so in theory, if you don't have to take on risk because you're way overfunded, sure, be conservative. Most Americans need an equity risk premium, so I'm, I'm a bit concerned to tell someone to be too conservative when today, you know, if you want to actually have your assets last more than 25 or 30 years, you probably got to have some equity risk in there. Are there any asset classes or categories that you think retirees or maybe their advisors tend to kind of underdo when constructing retirement portfolios? Well, I mean, so one thing that we do that I like as well as we have different model allocations for different life cycle stages. So, you know, for example, a 60-40 portfolio would look different for someone who was 25 versus 65. Um, and that's because, you know, the goal of the portfolio kind of changes, right? If I'm 25 years old, I want the maximum return possible given a unit of risk. And risk will just call 
uh, standard deviation for simplicity purposes. But if I'm 65 years old, you know, I've saved my financial capital for a specific purpose, which is to fund retirement consumption. And so the asset classes you use in that portfolio should look different than if I'm solely focused on maximizing the return per unit of risk. And so, you know, certain things like tips in real estate and domestic equities become a lot more efficient for someone who is at retirement than someone who's younger. So I think it's just important to think about, you know, how is the portfolio that you created designed to accomplish the investor's goals, given that the portfolio itself, the goal changes over someone's life cycle. Okay. So you're talking about the complexion of the actual asset class exposures. Right. So suggesting that inflation protection is a bigger deal for retirees than it is for those young accumulators. Right. So someone that's really young, in theory, has a great inflation hedge via their human capital. As you age, you kind of somewhat deplete that asset. So you need to kind of get that exposure via your financial assets. So it's, again, thinking about what can I own in my portfolio that reflects, you know, what I want to accomplish in retirement. And it's important to note, too, that, you know, people have tips in their portfolio already via Social Security retirement benefits, right? You know, that is a government, quote unquote, bond linked to inflation. So it might not be that you need any more of that at all in your portfolio. And again, it's, you know, what are you trying to accomplish? What is your risk tolerance? What is your income goal? Things like that. You've mentioned inflation on a couple of occasions, and I've loved the work that you've done that has looked at retirees' consumption baskets, and the Bureau of Labor Statistics has been doing some work on this as well, looking at what retirees spend their money on. Can we talk about that, how big a deal inflation is for retirees and why that is? Sure. So there's lots of fun definitions of inflation. There's the CPIW, the CPIU, the CPIE, just to name a few. So CPIE is the one for older adults. The CPIE is the one for elderly. It's 60, if you're 62 or older. And it's just noting that you know if you use a broad basket of consumption, which is what the CPI baskets are, it doesn't necessarily reflect what retirees spend money on, right? So they tend to allocate about double the average American on things like healthcare. And so when you're thinking about you know, how will costs grow over time? That's a really important thing because one, the research that we talked about previously found that retirees spend about 1% less on average. You know, there's some question about how that will actually manifest itself in the future given the rise in healthcare costs, right? So inflation has been relatively low for, you know, most of the key expenditure baskets, but healthcare has been pretty significant, right? So, you know, if I'm a retiree, you know, how do I plan for retirement? that could last 30 years if healthcare rises by 5% a year, right? So, I mean, healthcare is the only expenditure that actually rises in today's dollars in retirement. Everything else tends to go down. And I don't know how you hedge for it. In theory, you could buy like a healthcare ETF, but that actually isn't a great hedge against actual healthcare costs. So healthcare is kind of that big unknown that retirees confront today. I think you've published research that suggests that one of the underutilized tools in a retiree's toolkit could be annuities. Mm -hmm. We've talked about that earlier in this conversation. Maybe we can telescope in and talk about, I mean, if I am sort of eligible for that type of instrument or tool in my retirement plan, how do I choose? Like, what should I look for? Yeah, the A word is always a a controversial one. Um, You know, I, I talk about them a lot in different contexts. And before I talk about annuities, it's always nice to level set, right? When we think about mutual funds, right, there are really good mutual funds and really bad mutual funds, okay? With annuities, there's really good annuities, really bad annuities, okay? And to call a spade a spade, most annuities that I've seen personally that my friends and family show me have not been of high quality. But the fundamental purpose of an annuity is I perceive them as guaranteed income for mm-hmm. life, right? And I think they can be a really valuable way for retirees to create income because people, for one, are terrible at spending their wealth, 
You know, people tend to underconsume their portfolios. So it's really hard to know, gosh, I have a – let's say I have a million dollars saved for retirement. I don't know how long I'm going to live. You know, how much can I spend? And so I think, you know, if you don't annuitize, you, you worry more. I think, you know, guaranteed income gives you an assurance mm-hmm. that you have some income for life. And so, you know, who should buy the annuity? Well, someone that values the certainty of, you know, guaranteed income, someone that was going to maybe invest more conservatively – um, in the absence of buying the annuity, someone that's maybe less concerned about leaving money to their heirs because they want to kind of maximize their lifestyle, and someone that wants to live for a long time, or thinks they're going to live for a long time. And once you have kind of those attributes, you ask the question, well, you know, what product should I buy? You know, there's immediate annuities, there's deferred annuities, there's these GLWBs, and there isn't one right answer for everyone. Academics, you know, tend to focus on what are called deferred income annuities or DIAs. They're also called longevity insurance or what's called a qualified longevity annuity contract or a QLAC inside of a DC plan. But long story short, these annuities you buy at, say, age 65, and the income starts if you're still alive at age 75. And I think those make the most sense from a hedging perspective because most folks don't need the guarantee right now. Like, I'm 65. I just read, I know what I've got. They need some assurance if I live beyond a given age. So I like those the most. They're still very unpopular. But in reality, it's what are you trying to accomplish? And that should be the framework to figure out what is the best annuity for you. So it seems like one thing that's been kind of bedeviling the annuity space is a dearth of products that offer any kind of inflation protection. Is is that correct? So if I buy this stream of income, it's not going to be inflation adjusted by and large, except for a few contracts out there. How big a deal is that for people? So I actually, again, it's like whenever you buy insurance, whenever you have a risk, it's reduce, retain, avoid transfer. There's like this whole decision matrix process, right? And so inflation is obviously a risk that you face. There's only one provider today that actually offers inflation-adjusted immediate annuities. They do exist on some interesting GWB contracts. But here's the thing. Like, I think that you can get most of the way there just via like a, a fixed cost of adjustment. So just tack on a 2% adjustment where the benefits increase every year by 2%. That is obviously not a perfect inflation hedge. But most households have inflation hedge assets. They've got Social Security. They've got their financial assets. They've got a house. And so the question is, is, is it worth to plan for inflation, yes, I think you should have a rising benefit. Is it worth it to explicitly tie the benefit payout to inflation? Probably not, given the payout rates and the industry at large today. So in addition to all of your retirement research, you've done a lot of work on asset allocation generally, you and the team. One piece of research that I wanted to talk about was the research on homeownership. I think the piece was called The Home is a Risky Asset. Let's talk about that. The basic conclusion was don't count on your home to provide an investment return that beats a liquid investment portfolio, correct? Yeah, people, I think, for the most part, think that homes are relatively safe. And, you know, one problem that I've seen, even amongst advisors that think about, you know, home ownership, is that they'll often use, like, the Case-Shiller indexes when it comes to, like, volatility. Where here's the thing. You know, a home is like owning a single stock, right? And how many financial advisors would ever recommend that a client own a single stock? pretty close to zero if you're good at your job, right? And so what you have is a lot of idiosyncratic risk when you own a home. And what that creates is this likelihood that you could have a negative return for long periods of time. And so I think that homes make a lot of sense for most people because they're both an investment good and a consumption good, but they're not necessarily a great investment. So don't view your home as an investment. So view it as a way to accumulate wealth and to have shelter as long as you're there, but it's not as safe as most people or advisors think it is. It's highly 
geography dependent incredibly, though, right? Yes, incredibly yeah. specific to where you live. I mean, certain areas like California have seen phenomenal growth in home values for the last two decades. Other places like Phoenix or certain parts of Florida or Detroit have seen negative growth over that same time horizon. So, you know, the problem is it's, it's wherever you are is what you're tied to and you really can't diversify that away very easily. What about company stock? I'm not really a fan of company stock. I mean, I think I think I mean it's okay to own it in in, in small batches if you must. Um, but here's the thing: I mean, you already have exposure to that company via your human capital. Diversify it away as soon as you can. I mean, again, it's a single company. You know, things can happen. Ironically, I used to talk about certain large companies that are diversified, like GE would be a pretty safe company <laughs> yeah. stock to own. I have since changed my perspective uh, post what we've seen happen with GE. So I'm really, you know, you do it if you have to, but if you can diversify it, do it as soon as you can. Going back to retirement planning, in your years focusing on the retirement planning space, what are some underappreciated aspects of retirement success in your view? To me, it's just staying the course. I mean, investing really should be pretty dull. A good planner is just helping someone, you know, you're like a fitness coach, helping someone stay on this path of wellness that requires, you know, not making a lot of changes and doing the right things. And, you know, someone might say, well, you know, you did it, you did the plan two or three years ago, it hasn't changed, why am I still paying you? And to me, it's, it's helping that person stay on that plan towards success. Because, you know, in my experience, people make like the worst decisions when they're left to their own devices. And having someone that you can kind of talk to and talk through things leads to better choices over time. Well, on that note, I think we'll close things out. David, thank you so much for your time and perspectives. They've been really valuable. And, and thanks for being our guest in The Long View. Thanks for having me. Thanks so much, David. Thanks for joining us on The Long View. If you liked what you heard, please subscribe to and rate The Long View for Morningstar on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can follow us on Twitter at Christine underscore Benz. And at S-Youth1, which is S-Y-O-U-T-H in the number one. Finally, we'd love to get your feedback. If you have a comment or a guest idea, please email us at morningstar.com. Until next time, thanks for joining us. This recording is for informational purposes only and should not be considered investment advice. Opinions expressed are as of the date of recording. Such opinions are subject to change. The views and opinions of guests on this program are not necessarily those of Morningstar, Inc. and its affiliates. Morningstar and its affiliates are not affiliated with this guest or his or her business affiliates unless otherwise stated. Morningstar does not guarantee the accuracy or the completeness of the data presented herein. Jeff Patak is an employee of Morningstar Research Services, LLC. Morningstar Research Services is a subsidiary of Morningstar, Inc. and is registered with and governed by the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission. Morningstar Research Services shall not be responsible for any trading decisions, damages, or other losses resulting from or related to the information, data analyses, or opinions, or their use. Past performance is not a guarantee of future results. All investments are subject to investment risk, including possible loss of principal. Individuals should seriously consider if an investment is suitable for them by referencing their own financial position investment objectives, and risk profile before making any investment decision.